0: Thanks very much. Ooh, we've got plenty of time, yes. Um, Acts 8 is what we're going to look at, but we're going on to Acts chapter 20 as well. I just want to give a little word of testimony, if I may, because you've asked me to speak about um, personal work and cell winning, and I have to say, as a Christian, the thing that has given me greatest joy in my life is the tremendous privilege of being able to speak to people about Jesus. Um, I was converted when I was 15. I was converted in the Lebanon. I think many of you know this story. Uh, my mother was brought up in the Lebanon, though she's not, she wasn't Lebanese. She was actually, amazingly, if I'd told you a few years ago, two or three years ago where she was born, nobody would have ever heard of it. But now, unfortunately, everybody has. She was born in Aleppo in Syria, and um, she was born in a refugee camp. It's a fascinating story, but that's not What's on the agenda tonight? She was, she was born there, but she grew up in the, Leb- in the Lebanon. And I had relatives who ran a Christian hospital in Beirut. And uh, as, a, as a youngster, uh, I used to go with my family on holiday there in the summer. It was a wonderful, wonderful place. But in 1965, when I was 15, I went by myself and it was there that I was led to Christ. I was led to Christ through one man taking time and making the effort to get alongside me. Um, I enjoyed playing tennis in those days. You'd never believe it now, would you? But it's, uh, I enjoyed playing tennis in those days. And so he volunteered to play tennis. He was too old to play tennis. He was 45. And, um, and he played with a tennis racket, a tennis ball, and a Zimmer frame. And I was totally merciless. And I had him puffing and panting from one side of the court to the other. It was wonderful. I loved it. Um, but he was really just trying to build a bridge to get alongside me. And, um, and that's exactly what he did. And then... Uh, walking back from the tennis court, where I think I'd had a very famous victory. Um, uh, he pulled out from his back pocket a little New Testament. And I, I remember thinking, what a funny thing to play tennis with a Bible stuffed in your back pocket. And, um, and he began to talk to me about the things of God. And sitting on a log in a little clearing in the woods in the mountains of the Lebanon, it could not have been a more idyllic setting. He went through various verses in the book of Romans. Some of you know that um uh, the book of Romans, because it was so special to me and I give it a bit of an introduction. And then it's just the book of Romans. And at the end, it's got the verses that my uncle used to lead me to Christ. And it's really to give away to philosophers and perhaps Roman Catholic people, religious people, etc. And um, he went through the book of Romans, but it was the explanation of the cross. Jesus had died for me. I'd never understood that before. My sin was laid on him. He'd paid the penalty. It would take me all eternity to pay, but he, the eternal one, paid for it in those hours on the cross. And I simply, as a teenager, thought, wow, if he loved me enough to die for me, I should trust him. And that very day, August 25th, 1965, about midday, I prayed and asked Jesus Christ to become my Lord and Savior. I remember the next few days before I flew back to, to England, my uncle saying to me, now, when you get back, you need to tell your friends about Jesus. I thought, oh, I don't know that I dare do that. But I found it was a very natural thing to want to do. I was a bit clueless. I presumed once my friends heard about Jesus, they too would all become Christians. It wasn't quite like that. But I started a Christian union at school, and um, we used to get good crowds along, and, and so it goes on. But I struggled, really, for about a year. I went to Let me be honest, I went to a Methodist church where they were not preaching the Bible, where they were not teaching the gospel, and I just struggled on. I was taught to, well, my uncle said to me, Roger, you need to have a daily quiet time when you read the Bible and pray. And he said, you need to go to a particular place at a particular time, and every day, be in that place at that time, and never keep God waiting. (laughs) That's what he said. It didn't work out quite like that. But nevertheless, I was trying to read my Bible and pray, but I was struggling. And then through a series of amazing quote unquote coincidences. A coincidence is a little miracle where God prefers to remain anonymous. Through a series of providences, um I came across young life. And um uh Werner Wright was leading the group in Leeds then. The first time I ever went Gerard was speaking, I um I don't remember what he said, but I do remember he was absolutely hira- hilarious and I loved it. And from then on I just lived for the weekends. At the age of seventeen I bought a book that was to be one of the most transformational books that I've ever read in my life. The biography of Hudson Taylor hugely impacted me, but this one changed me. And there are a load on the bookstall now. Uh, It used to be called Moody Without Sankey, but this is simply called D.L. Moody. The biography of the American evangelist D.L. Moody. He was a larger-than-life character in every way, physically, emotionally, spiritually. He loved people. And he really preached very faithfully the love of God and especially appealed to men, both in the UK and in the USA. But I read there that he never let a day go by without speaking to somebody about Jesus. Now, he was preaching to thousands, the sort of numbers I would never see. But he was preaching to them. But every single day, he found one person with whom he could chat about the gospel. I was 17. And um, as it happened, for the next three days... I spoke to somebody about Christ. I remember two of them very clearly. And... um... Um, in fact one was a, a Jewish businessman in Leeds and I was just having cheese on toast I love cheese on toast still and I did then I was just having cheese on toast in this cafe he was having something else and I spoke to him about the Lord and uh, I didn't realise quite how influential he was and then he, he said let me pay for your meal I said no no it's alright I wish I'd had steak and chips and uh, <laughs> but he did and I thought then ok perhaps everyone's not as antagonistic as you imagine they are And um, and I after three days, I just thought, well, under God, with his help, I'd like to try and make sure that every single day I try and speak to somebody about Jesus. Now, I have missed some days, I've got to be honest, but basically it's not very many. It's a little sort of joyful discipline in my life that I go into each day and I look for somebody to try and just chat with. So to speak on this subject tonight, um, I'm thrilled really to be able to do so because it's the one that's very close to my heart. There, I, it doesn't mean I sometimes don't struggle. Sometimes I do. I think, oh, I can't be bothered with you. You don't deserve to be saved. Um, and of course they don't. But um, uh, <laughs> it's amazing how wicked our hearts are and uh, et cetera. But there are other struggles that are disciplines which are worth working out. The, the discipline of meeting with God day by day. I don't think there's anything to replace that. If you go through your Christian life and you're not reading your Bible every day, you're really consigning yourself to spiritual immaturity. And we need to be reading the Bible, to be building ourselves up, etc. We need to be praying and asking the Lord to help us and use us and bless us, and etc., as well as praising him. But the, the joy of simply speaking to people about Jesus, I love. And I love as well trying to be a catalyst to, um, to sort of trigger others into evangelism and I suppose that's one reason why I love selling the tracts because I just think you just never know one tract, one booklet left here given there, prayerfully presented here, who knows so I'd just like before we turn to Acts chapter 8 and look at it carefully, I'd like to make a, another little offer if I may two years ago I produced a tract called Handel's Messiah We usually call the music the Messiah. It's not actually a Messiah. It's just called Messiah. And it tells the story of Handel's Messiah and the scriptures and it explains the gospel. And two years ago, a group, just I think five of us, went outside Leeds Town Hall, which seats 1635 people. It was packed and we just gave away these tracts. None of us had a tract refused. Every single one of us uh, offering tracts found that they took them and none were discarded. I could tell more about it because something quite unusual happened as a result of it. But I thought, isn't this amazing? And last year I went to one or two places where Handel's Messiah was being performed and just gave out the track. Can I give you a leaflet about the Messiah, please? (laughs) And they all took it. (laughs) And, uh, And of course they get there early, so they've got half an hour to sit and read it. Now I've brought several thousand of these. If you would be willing to go to a place near you, And there will be somewhere near you. It may just be in a parish church, maybe in a town hall or whatever. Perhaps with a couple, two or three others to give out these. um, It's usually the first week or so of December. I'll gladly give you the tracts that you need. Okay? So it's not going to cost you anything. Just some prayer and a bit of effort with some friends. And I think you'll find real joy and delight. And who knows how the Lord might use this tract. Of course... I, I try to use tracts all the time, but once in a while, there is a special opportunity. Listen to these words. I want to make a statement, and then I want to sort of unfold it from Philip, the evangelist, whom we read about in Acts chapter 8. The Lord of creation has ordained that we would do his work, sorry, that he would do his work through us. Our seeking the Lord's guidance and obeying what he wants us to do and say is the way that he works to bless the world. Now, clearly, there are some exceptions to that. And we know of somebody who just happens to find a Bible and reads it, etc. But nevertheless, generally speaking, that is a great truth. We know that we're under marching orders from the Lord himself. He said, go into all the world. And preach the gospel. He said go and teach every creature. And the verse I read if I may read it again. From the end of Luke's gospel. He said to them. Thus it was written. And thus it was necessary for the Christ to suffer. And to rise from the dead the third day. And that repentance. And remission of sins should be preached in his name. To all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And you are witnesses of these things. Behold I send you the promise of my father upon you. But wait in the city of Jerusalem. Until you are endured. With power from on high. We are, as Christians, under marching orders to go and spread this message, to proclaim it, to witness to it. And again, if I may just repeat something from this morning, just to get it into our thinking. There are, as it were, three types of Christians when it comes to evangelism. Every one of us, the most diffident, nervous, shy, stammering Christian, is nevertheless a witness My brother-in-law is totally deaf. He's never heard a sound. And as a result of that, of course, he's mute. He he, Physiologically, he has the ability to speak, but because he's never heard anything, he he can't speak. He was converted as a little boy at Payne's and United Beach Missions, and he's gone on with the Lord. But he can't witness with words. He hasn't got them. But he, nevertheless, is a witness for the Lord. And then as we thought... This morning, pastors, according to Paul writing to Timothy 2 Timothy chapter 4, are to do the work of the evangelist. Okay, so that may not be their natural gifting, their natural inclination even. But an evangel- a pastor should never stand up and say, I'm not an evangelist. They may not be, but they would have to add, I'm not an evangelist, but nevertheless, I'm going to try and do the work of the evangelist because I'm under orders to do so. And then thirdly, there are some people whose particular gifting... Is that of the evangelist. And therefore their calling. Is that of the evangelist. I don't know whether you've noticed. But people find joy. In doing what they are gifted at doing. I watched Anna. Because I love the violin. I watched Anna playing the violin. I thought I'd love to be able to play the violin. But you wouldn't love me to play the violin. It's not a gift. And when I tried to have music lessons. Years and years ago. I hated it. I really really hated it. In fact, I remember going to the music lesson on one occasion and I just hadn't practiced, so I glued the pages together. And when I got to the piano teacher and she said, what's happened here? I said, well, oh, I have no idea. It must have been my bacon sandwiches that just caused the fat to stick the pages. <laughs> she must have thought, you liar. <laughs> but you see, there was no joy for me in trying to make music because I'm not musically gifted. All right. So joy comes in using whatever gift God has given us. And he's given us, every one of us, a gift. Maybe some of us he's given a few gifts. I don't know. But um, joy comes in using those gifts for the Lord. Some people will have the gift of the evangelist. But there are not many evangelists around these days. And I personally think it's because they're very often steered through Bible college or whatever it is, through teaching into other ministries. But then they're always frustrated always think no i really want to be getting out and reaching the lost but for whatever reason that isn't what they've been set apart for so every christian is a witness the pastor to do the work of the evangelist some people are evangelists but i want to go to this idea of every christian a witness listen to the words of charles Haddon spurgeon anything by spurgeon is worth reading he said this soul winning is the chief pursuit of the christian minister Indeed, it should be the main pursuit of every true Christian. Now, the early church, because of the difficulties, the pressures that were mounting on them, the early church set aside seven men. And they were going to be devoted to the ministry of the word, to preaching, studying the Bible and teaching in an expository way the the Bible. And they were going to be devoted to prayer. It's interesting, there's tremendous emphasis these days on expounding the Word of God, which is great, but there isn't quite the same emphasis on praying. But nevertheless, it was the ministry of the Word and prayer. Stephen, the first Christian martyr, and Philip, the first man called an evangelist, in fact the only man in all of scripture actually designated with the, 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 the sort of title an evangelist, were not among the seven. So what was their responsibility? Well, to serve at tables. So they were ordinary sort of guys, ordinary Christians, but they weren't set aside for, as it were, we would regard them as sort of full-time ministers. No, no, you're you're doing these other chores. But actually, their heart burned within them, and they had to speak of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stephen, as we know, was stoned to death. Philip, then, the man we call the evangelist, named as an evangelist, but not one of the seven. He was never actually commissioned by the local church, which is an unusual thing. You'd sort of think, oh, surely the local church has got to go. He was never commissioned by the local church. You know, I mentioned this morning um, Trevor Knight's book, God's Early Evangelist, and I said it was excellent, and I'd studied, obviously, the chapter on Philip. He says about Philip, he had not been commissioned to be an evangelist by the apostles. He had not yet been called an evangelist. But he just got on with the job out of a full heart. And that's exactly it. And as we'll go over his biography, we'll see that sometimes he's working with crowds, vast crowds. But other times he's working with individuals. He he never felt because he, he, he sometimes had the tremendous privilege of speaking to huge crowds that he'd got no time for individuals. He had time for people as well as the crowds. Sometimes he was working in cities, with town dwellers, and other times with... Travellers. Sometimes he was working amongst the despised. He was working amongst non-church people. And he worked amongst a variety of races. He began his ministry as an itinerant evangelist, a travelling evangelist. When I first began my work as an evangelist, I used to call myself an itinerant evangelist. I dropped that when somebody, this is absolutely true, when somebody wrote to me and said, Dear Illiterate Evangelist. So I thought, well, oh, okay, I don't know that people know this word itinerant anymore, so I just dropped it. But um, uh, he began his work as an itinerant evangelist from Jerusalem because of persecution. He goes to Samaria, he works there, and then God calls him to go out into the, the, the desert and find this individual. Then he's going around all those towns. By the coast in the Azotus area. And then he goes to Caesarea. So there was a period of itinerating. And then eventually he settled. And he worked for 20 years in Caesarea. Maybe it was because he had a family. And he had four daughters. I don't know. But there was a variety to his work. But I think we can learn from him. Alright he was an evangelist. And many here might say. I don't know that that is my gift. Well let's learn from him as a soul winner. And he may be exceptional. Contrasted with us. But nevertheless, let's learn from him as a soul winner. First of all, he had the soul winner's fire. He had passion. He had something of the heart of God for men and women. It is good to read the Bible, and I seek Each day to, to read something of the scripture and then perhaps a little bit later on in the day just to dip in it. It is good to read the Bible. But nonetheless, God has always used expositors and evangelists to explain and proclaim the Bible. In fact, when you, when you, when you read about how we should bring up children, discuss this. We're not told to teach children to read the Bible. We get great delight at being able to give children a Bible, but actually the Bible doesn't really say that we should teach children to read the Bible, because frankly, there's a lot in the Bible that isn't particularly suitable for children. I understand the Jews, for example, were not permitted to read the Song of Solomon till they got to the age of 30. Actually, the emphasis of the Bible is that we should teach children the Bible. And I wonder whether sometimes we're getting it a bit wrong by saying, oh, here's a Bible. Maybe we should be teaching. And that's where something like the Jesus Storybook Bible is is so helpful. But that's a different subject. So we need evangelists. We need expositors to teach, to explain, to, to unfold the truths of the word of God. Now, persecution came in Jerusalem. And so Samaria was the place that Philip fled to. It's interesting because there was immense blessing through this man who'd never been told, as as, as far as we know, by the church, you go to Samaria. He just went there. And he started preaching. Of course, Jesus had been there before. And there was such blessing. We would call it revival. A mighty work of God. Many people were converted. So much so that eventually Peter and John, who really were the, the best, were sent to go and strengthen the work and to help in it. But the point is, For Philip, this soul winner, this evangelist, he had to be winning souls. He had to be telling people about Jesus. He had to be preaching the gospel. William Booth the founder of the Salvation Army has sort of gone out of our thinking a little bit the Salvation Army maybe has drifted somewhat from the gospel and the Bible and so because of that we've sort of forgotten their history but he was a mighty man we may not agree with everything he thought and said and did but he was a mighty God, uh, a mighty man and used greatly not only socially but evangelistically in the UK he met King Edward VII and uh, he said alright don't worry about people moving this, i have this effect on folk so it's uh <laughs> um, he met king edward the seventh and um in 1904 the king asked william booth will you sign my autograph book please you sort of don't imagine that do you and um so william booth signed it. this is what he wrote your majesty some men's ambition is art some men's ambition is fame some men's ambition is gold My ambition is the souls of men. All right, it's a little bit quaint. But he wanted to see men and women being truly born again. He wanted to see them converted. The greatest act of friendship I can show to anybody is to introduce them to Jesus Christ. And the greatest act of treachery I can show to anybody is to not tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. William Booth understood that we need to be out to rescue the perishing, to quote that old hymn. So, Philip goes first to share the gospel with the Samaritans. But then, he's taken... Well, actually, an angel of the Lord tells him to go into the desert, and he shares the gospel with an African. He has this very short encounter, unforgettable encounter, with an African man. He speaks to him about Jesus Christ... Well, actually, the African he's reading Isaiah chapter fifty-three, and 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 um, Philip sort of gets up in the chariot and explains it to him, etc. And he leads him to Christ, and and he obviously speaks to him, gives him the works, because he talks about baptism, and and uh, the the Ethiopian says, well, look, there's some water here. What hinders me to, from being baptized? And sure enough, he's baptized. But <laughs> before. Before the Ethiopian could even wash down from being baptized, Philip's gone. He's off to Otis He's preaching the gospel in this area. They never met again. One day, they will stand, well, perhaps already before the glorified Lord Jesus Christ. But they never met on earth again. But you couldn't stop this man speaking. Now, the soul winner has something of the heart of God. That's why it cannot just be manufactured. As we spend time with the Lord, reading the Bible, praying day by day, something of the heart of God begins to fill us so that we have to speak. Why do we go on a beach mission? Well, we want people to be saved. But where have we got that from? Well, the Lord wants people to be saved. God our Savior, we read in 1 Timothy chapter 2 verse 4, God our Savior desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. So what is God's desire? He wants everybody to be saved. To Peter. The Lord is long-suffering toward us all, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. So what is the heart of God? He wants people to be converted. He wants them to repent and believe. Think of the Lord Jesus looking, not just with a careless gaze, but with deep spiritual longing at his own city, the city of Jerusalem. And I'm sure with great tears in his eyes and a heaviness in his heart, he says, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how often would I have gathered you? As a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. But you would not. I would have, but you wouldn't. God's heart is for people to be saved. And if we're close to the Lord, if something of, of His image is impacting us, we'll have a similar longing. Ezekiel. I spoke a little about him this morning. He's worth reading. I know there's some difficult things to understand in Ezekiel, but what a man. What a passion. Chapter 18. Quoting the Lord Himself, Ezekiel says, Do Do I have any pleasure at all that the wicked should die, says the Lord? And not that he should turn from his ways and live? For I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God. Therefore, he appeals to them, turn you and live. There is no rejoicing in heaven over a sinner who is judged and condemned, but there is rejoicing in the midst of the the, the, the sort of presence of the angels of God, that's what it says over one sinner who repents. So we talk about angels rejoicing, I'm sure they do, but it's actually there's joy in the presence of the angels of God. I think that's actually the Lord, who once wept over sinners and died for sinners. Now he's rejoicing as they come to, to faith. There is a fire in the heart of the soul winner. Okay, sometimes that fire grows cool, we know that. But if we keep close to the Lord, we'll have God's passion for the lost. God's longing for the lost. His longing was such that he came into the world in the person of the Lord Jesus and suffered and died on the cross. There'll be something of that that says, Lord, I'm willing to die to self for the cause of Christ. And then secondly, now, don't write me off for this, but I think it's true. The soul winner has fun The soul winner's fun. There are glimpses in the creativity of God when you're involved in winning people for Jesus Christ. So, here is Philip. He's preaching. I don't know, hundreds, thousands in Samaria listening to him. Wonderful things are going on. And then God speaks to him through an angel and says, I want you to go to the desert. (laughs) It was a very strange thing, and I think I would have questioned that, wouldn't you? But anyway. He goes into the desert, and guess what? He finds the Chancellor of the Exchequer of the land of Ethiopia, who serves Queen Candace, sitting, traveling, reading Isaiah chapter 53. If you could wish for him to read any chapter in all of the Old Testament, I think we'd probably say, hey, try Isaiah chapter 53. And that's what he was reading. And he was reading it out loud. It was a wonderful moment. Did you pick up what Jason was saying earlier today about um, the guy who... Um, uh you know is, is 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 given what was it a gospel or a tract was it in New York etc and it leads to the, the this church in in, in Japan etc amazing god seems to do these things did i get that story a bit wrong but you've got the gist he i think the lord sort of seems to delight in bringing most unusual strands together some of you have heard this story before, because it's an old one now, but it's the best I could think of in this sort of unusual aspect, but it, similar things have happened all over the years, but well, this was a gorgeous one, from some years ago, my wife and I were in Wakefield, Wakefield is in Yorkshire, but to be honest it's a bit of a dump really, I'm sorry Pauline, but it is a bit of a, it really should be in Lancashire, it sort of slipped across a, and um, we're in Wakefield and um, uh, it was the sails and we were trying to cross a busy road but it really was busy and we were just waiting and, blah, blah, blah. and there was a guy on the other side of the road and he was trying to cross to where we were etc and eventually he just became so exasperated he impatiently just stuck out his hand and stopped the cars and walked in front of them you see all was screeching to a halt and he saw us sort of wide-eyed looking at him and he just turned as he walked by us and said cars everywhere I bet there are cars in the Sahara desert To which I just said, well, I'll tell you where there aren't any cars. Where's that? Sir, there are no cars in heaven. And if you trust Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, (laughs) you could go there. This man, I reckon he was about 63, 64 years of age. This man just stopped. This is what he said. I've just come from burying my 96-year-old mother, and she was always telling me things like that. So I said, oh, just a minute, sir. And I said, "Um, tell me about your mum. And sure enough, she was a born-again believer, and this chap wasn't. And he'd never been converted, and he'd just been to his mum's funeral. Amazing. I, 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 I've had another one about crossing the road. Ask me later, I'll tell you if that was more recently. But, but the way things just come together. I have a friend who's a missionary, an American missionary, working in Italy. And he is remarkable, there's no doubt. In his recent prayer letter, just a couple of weeks ago... Um, says how he was going i think it was on EasyJet to some conference somewhere, and he said it was just total chaos no it must have been Ryanair and um, <laughs> um, no, actually it got there, so it probably was easyJet but it 's um, uh, total chaos and uh, he said, I sat down and got my seat, and um, in fact mine was next to the only empty seat on the plane. And then they announced they were waiting for just one more passenger. And they, you know the sort of irritation they sometimes announce. And they're all waiting, waiting. And then eventually this, this bustling sort of guy comes and sits next to him. That was the guy. And he tells his story. And, um, and my friend just turned to him and said, um, have you ever thought about God? That maybe he's been at work in your life to sit you here and this chap turns and says, why do you say that? And he said, well, I'm a Christian, and da, 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 da. And he began to explain the gospel. And he said to the, 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 the man who sat next to him, said, why do you believe that? And he went through it. And the more he went through it, the more this chap asked questions. And eventually, just before landing, the man said, my mother has recently become a born-again Christian. And my delays in getting to this plane were all to do with a bit of an altercation with her before I came on. But she said to me, I'm going to pray that you'll sit next to somebody who will tell you why I believe what I believe. (laughs) And he had the tremendous privilege when they got off the plane, they stopped and talked together, and he led him to Christ. And he's just said he's a man extremely high up in European Union politics, but he's been converted now God loves to just bring strange strands together, and you'll find this, and there's a fun about it. There is joy in witnessing. I know some of you think, "Oh, I'm just so scared." Why? Just talk, talk about the things that are most precious to you. And if you get it wrong, don't worry; they won't realise. This morning, when I was um, when when I was preaching, I got some of my points muddled up, but you didn't. Oh you you did okay but you normally you can get away with it you just keep going and they've no idea and just speak and the lord takes something that can be very weak and uses it in a great great way and you know it is to be the priority of our life over a century ago there was a knock on 10 downing street's door that was when you could go up the street and actually approach it and the prime minister Mr. Gladstone was writing an important speech that he was going to speak that very day in Parliament, but he was called out to the, see the person who had come to the door. And it was a little boy, an urchin, a, a scraggy little boy. But Gladstone had got to know him a little. He got to know some of these characters. You probably know that, and um, he'd won his heart through kindness. And the little boy just looked up at the Prime Minister and said, "Mr. Gladstone, my younger brother is dying." Please will you come and show him the way to heaven because he doesn't know. And Gladstone left everything and went with this little boy. And he led this little brother to Christ. And he wrote at the bottom of the notes of his speech which have been preserved to this day. He wrote, I am the happiest man in London, in England today. There was something more important than even giving a speech in Parliament, and it had to be the priority of his life. There is a fun about it. There is a joy, a privilege, and sometimes you look back and say, oh, wasn't that amazing? I've walked away on a number of occasions from McDonald's. I I don't know. I just like McDonald's. uh, I just think it's amazing that plastic can be so tasty. And uh, (laughs) I've walked away on a number of occasions in different places with cold McDonald's, French fries that have frozen french fries and burgers that are absolutely cold because i've bought them and i've got talking to the person behind the counter we have a good conversation um oh my mcdonald's is cold but wasn't that a great conversation all the time we're rubbing shoulders with people and you are meeting people i'm not meeting i'm meeting people you're not meeting but hey if there are 250 of us here and we're scattered how many hundreds of people are we meeting What an impact we can have under God, because he's taking us and using us, but nevertheless, what an impact can be made. I think we're all aware of the vociferous homosexual lobby and the impact it's made on the media, on acts of parliament. We know this, but they are the tiniest of minorities. There are far more Christians in the land than homosexuals, but what are they doing? They're vocal, they're unashamed. And yet, for some reason, we, we, we feel as I said this morning, intimidated into a silence. I was at Sunbridge Road Mission in Bradford a year last Christmas, and a lady, I was speaking at the carol service, a lady gave her testimony, and I've known her for quite some years. She was brought up in Ceausescu's Romania. Ceausescu was the totalitarian dictator, and he was a cruel, vicious man. They reckon he personally had 60,000 people ordered to death. So it was a nasty piece of work. She grew up in this atheistic, communistic country. At the age of 19, having been thoroughly brainwashed with these things, she was converted to Christ. And she began to go on and grow. Then eight, 1989 came, communism collapsed. Christmas Day, Ceaușescu, Ceaușescu and his wife Elena were executed and suddenly everything changed. And she left Romania and she came to the UK. She married a Brit And they've got a nice family. She's gone on with the Lord. And she works for the civil service. In fact, she's quite high up now in the civil service in Bradford. And then she said this. But do you know? It is harder today to speak about Jesus Christ in the civil service than ever it was to speak about Christ in Ceausescu's Romania. I was speaking at a day conference on personal evangelism at an anglican church in sheffield a few weeks later i mentioned this and a lady interrupted and said excuse me i am a school teacher in a church of england school and i am forbidden to speak about jesus christ i was speaking at a church in harold wood in essex a few weeks after that and over lunch with the vicar and his wife and a few other guests i I mentioned these two stories and a lady said i am a health visitor And I am visiting a lady who is dying and she is petrified of death. But I dare not speak to her about Christ because I will lose my job. But Philip wasn't like that. Okay, he may have moved on from Jerusalem because of persecution. But the consequences, he was going to leave with the Lord. He had to speak. He could not be silenced. And that leads me on to the third point. The soul winner's freedom. There is this passion for the gospel of God. He preached in the city and in the desert. He went into the desert because an angel told him, but later on he went on to Azotus because it seemed a good strategy. Then eventually in Caesarea, he worked there. A man who'd been to Samaria and seen revival, now in an outpost. It was the back of beyond sort of place, but he felt he had to be speaking. He felt that when he was with the individual. He felt it when he was in the city. Interestingly, when he went from the city, Samaria, to the desert, he went from the big opportunity to the small. Not many people do that. I could give you a whole list of ministers in the UK who have gone to much bigger churches in the States. I've never yet come across a big American church where the minister has come to work in a small English church. Because it's not the way we think, but it is the way God works. He takes us and he uses us, whether it's for one or for many. Everyone is significant as far as he's concerned. There is a freedom in just saying, I'm not going to follow the dictates of society, the pressures of the peer group around me, or even, as it were, trying to climb up the rungs of the evangelical ladder But I am going to seek to walk with God. Yes, under the authority and guidance of others. But nevertheless, seek to walk with God wherever he leads me. And then speak for God boldly. And then he goes to Caesarea. And for 20 years he's there. And he really was in a place of obscurity. He's no longer prominent. But he's still faithful. And interestingly, he has four daughters who are prophetesses. And they have much more honor now, as far as he's concerned, as well as far as the world is concerned, and probably as far as he's concerned, he looked at his daughters and thought, wow, they're doing really well, better than ever I did, but he still just keeps preaching. There was no bitterness, no resentment, no, why have I been overlooked, and they're having such a vital ministry, no, it just carries on. It's the freedom of saying, I am going to speak for the Lord Jesus Christ because I love him, because he's died for me, and I must make him known to the the men and women round about who so desperately need him too. And then lastly, the sowness fruit. Gleanings in the work of God. I don't know if you've noticed, but Scripture speaks both of us working together with God... And also it speaks of God working with us. It's a lovely sort of two aspects of the same truth. We're working with him. Lord, what do you want me to do? Who can I speak to? What what, what ministry am I to be involved in? How am I to live my life? But actually, God then takes us and uses us as well. We're working with him. He's working with us. And as we do, we expect to see fruit. Philip had been touched by the Holy Spirit. Now he's proclaiming the word. And people are listening and being converted. Maybe at some times as far as. Philip was concerned there may have been a lack of wisdom. You might look at the story about Simon and think, Ooh, Philip, you're too eager to identify with him. And it led to all sorts of problems. If you read the Acts chapter 8 in the earlier verses, you'll see all of that. Okay, we make our mistakes. We, we, we blunder. We mess up. We know that. But nevertheless, we say, Lord, could you just overrule these things? There's an earthen vessel here. But you are the treasure that is living within me. Lord, would you just... Come and live within me. Fill me. In such a way that I am overflowing. And I have to speak of all I've seen and heard. And would you give me the tremendous privilege of introducing men and women to the Lord Jesus Christ. Samaritans. An Ethiopian eunuch. The people of Azotus. The people of Caesarea. My own children, four daughters, I'd love them to be saved. And sure enough, they were, and they become prophetesses. They're ministering themselves. The Bible says, he who wins souls is wise. One day, you know, life will be over for me and for you. And I don't know how people will reflect on my life or your life. Maybe they won't. I once went to see the gravestone of, of John Howard, the great prison reformer. I was in Bedfordshire. I went to see it. And, and I went into the church where the graveyard is, where he's buried. And, and they photocopied his will and the instructions about his his funeral, etc. And it was fascinating. And he said this. When I die, bury me if you want. He, sa- he said, put a sundial on my grave and then forget me. I thought, yeah, I really like that. Just forget me but I would like to have lived my life and I'm sure this is how we all feel I would like to have lived my life pursuing souls like a red hot poker sort of pursuing them to the Lord Jesus Christ chasing them to him I I want to give every bit of breath that I have in making Christ known now don't you feel the same way What greater joy is there than getting up in the morning and saying, Lord, today I want to just speak to somebody about you. And there are so many opportunities, aren't there? They're amazing, you know, you're sitting down for your five o'clock meal, it's piping hot... And the phone goes, and you think, "Oh yes, praise the Lord! This is somebody from Bangladesh phoning me." <laughs> I've never been to Bangladesh in my life, but I've spoken to many people who were actually in Bangladesh at the time, and uh, they're trying to sell me—I don't know—double glazing or whatever it is. And and you know, for a Yorkshireman, this is what really makes it a blessing—they're paying the phone bill, not me. And um, Mr. Carswell, can we speak to you for a couple of minutes? By all means, as long as I can speak to you for a couple of minutes. And um, do you know, I've had some amazing conversations. They've become a little bit wise to it. I think somebody's warning them about people like me now. But uh, they're, they're coming by phone to me, and they're wanting to speak. So I tried to say a word. And you'd be amazed how many people knock on my door. I might be working at home, but they knock on the door. There's a delivery. There's the post. There's the milkman. There's the electric meter reader. There are the bailiffs. They keep coming to my... They're all there. And I have a little word. I've got some tracks for them. And can I give you a little Christian leaflet? My dustbin men? They know that if they stop, sometimes they're in a hurry and sometimes they're earlier than, than I'm up. But nevertheless, they know that they can have a cup of tea any time. And, uh, and they know they'll get a little message as well. But it's nice, it's chatty, it's, it's a bit of fun. Give them a cup of tea, a biscuit, and away they go. But I've had a little word with them. There are people like this all the time. As I said this morning, the person at the, the bus stop, the person you sit next to on the bus or the train And then it's not just the people we casually meet. In some ways I find those easier, but it's the people who we know much better. And we have to earn the right to speak and to say something and just wait for the right moment. And sometimes you can wait a long time. So there are two sorts of people in my mind. The people I will never meet again, let me try and say something or perhaps pass on something to them. The people I'll meet regularly and I need to wait for the right moment. But the trouble is, I find the closer I get to people, the harder it is actually to witness to them. So I've got to have this sort of sense of, right, I'm waiting for the right moment. Ideally, the right moment is when it's one-to-one. I find if there's a little group of them and you start getting into conversation and sometimes you can't help that. Somebody raises an issue and you've got to go for it. They can sort of gang up and they put on this facade of antagonism. But actually I find if you can get them one-to-one it's amazing how open they are. So why don't you just pray. Lord, would you give me one-to-one opportunities? Now some of you will be like Philip and you will have this gift of the evangelist. And I would encourage you To develop that under God. A couple of days ago. Oliver Barclay died. He used to be the. when UCCF was called InterVarsity Fellowship. He was the director. He was a great man was Oliver Barclay. And I once went to meet with him. To talk about things in the future. And he said this to me. It was unforgettable. Um, He said Roger if your yen. You know your burden. Your inclination. If your yen is evangelism. Go for it. Very few people have it, and most who have it lose it. Interesting. Now, some of you here tonight could well be evangelists in your church, in a group of churches, or itinerating like me. I don't know. I uh, I often say that uh, you know, if I stood up in a church week by week to preach the congregation would itinerate. So I've decided the best thing is I'll itinerate. And, um, but whatever it is, some of you have that gift. I would beg you to sort of start to hone in on that and fine-tune it and let it, the, the, the natural gifting, let it become a skill. Read about evangelists. Read about evangelism, be involved, beach missions, and then the, the, the Christian answer, etc. And the various things at university or college or the church or whatever it is. And then take every opportunity you can to speak. So young life took me under their wing. And I went down to the open-air meeting. They used to have three open-air meetings a week in Leeds in those days, Tuesday and Thursday lunchtime outside the town hall, and then very late on Saturday night outside the Corn Exchange, which was a rough sort of city centre place for all the pubs. It would be clubs nowadays. But um, and, um, and I used to go in my school uniform, which was hideous. It was black and red bright stripes and a black and red cap and short trousers and black and red striped, Socks and and I used to go. They must have thought, what a nitwit. But anyway, there we are. And um, little spotty me, who could get into that shirt. And um, and then eventually, I'd been there two or three times. And and I don't know who was leading the open air meeting at that time. But uh, we're going to have Roger on. They they used to have a box. We called it a soap box, a little wooden box. We'll have him up. Roger, tell us a little bit about yourself. How did you become? And I, I answered one or two questions. And this went on for weeks. So then one day they said, next week, Roger, instead of Instead of us asking you questions, you just tell us your story. And then a bit later on, Roger, next time, instead of just telling a story, why don't you just sort of give us a word? I have an incredible gift of being able to lose the crowd. And, and you, you get these other speakers, Werner Wright, he, he was a towering figure, a great open-air preacher. He would stand up outside the town hall in lunch he'd get a huge crowd, then little me would come, oh, where have they all gone? It was just like earlier on, you know, oh, if Roger's going to speak, let's go, you know. I'm amazed anybody's left, but we bolted the doors, that's right. And, and, uh, but you see, I was, I was learning, and then on beach missions, you know what it is, you're thrown in at the deep end, you think, oh, I'll never survive. But actually you've learned something. Now you're seeking to be a blessing. But you're learning. Take every opportunity you can to speak. And who knows. Who knows. How this gift will be refined. And then used. Read the story of. Amy Carmichael. Working with the. The, the, the girls working in the mill in the center of Belfast, seeking to speak to them and then arranging meetings for them. And eventually, of course, she goes to do that great work in southern India and, and so on. You'll find that these people who have been used in the winning of souls started by speaking and arranging evangelistic events. I'd urge you to do the same. There is there is a fire in the heart of the evangelist, but there is fun. There really is fun. There's tremendous joy and to look back at the end of a conversation and think, ooh, that was something special. There is a freedom. And under God, even in these very secular days where we're not reaping like we used to, you will see some fruit. You will. God will give you the increase. Find what is God's sort of work for you. And it will be all about living and speaking for Jesus. Then do just that. And when you mess up. Don't let it drag you down. Philip messed up with Simon. But nevertheless he kept on. And he was shortly winning the Ethiopian to the Lord. Just keep on. One day to be with the Lord. Yeah we may not have used all the talents that he gave us. But nevertheless. I want to be able to bow before him. And say I did love you. And I did seek to speak for you. And if there are some here. Because you used me in my witness. Then I'm thrilled. We used to sing a hymn in Young Life and and Beach Missions. It's gone out of popularity these days, and perhaps because it's not a great tune. But I would like to pray the final verse of the hymn and the chorus as our final prayer, and then we'll have a hymn. And again, like this morning, I had something to give you. I'd like to give you a card, and it's got the hymn on it. And on the back, a place where you can write the names of some unconverted friends so you can start to speak, uh, sorry, start to pray for them that you'll have opportunity to speak and lead them to Christ. So I'd like to give you all one of these, but let's close and I'm going to pray this final verse of this lovely hymn. Dear Lord, I ask for the eyes that see deep down to the world's sore need. I ask for a love that holds not back but pours out itself indeed. I want the passionate power of prayer that yearns for the great crowd's soul. I want to go amongst the fainting sheep and tell them my Lord makes whole. Let me look at the crowd as my Saviour did till my eyes with tears grow dim. Let me look till I pity the wandering sheep and love them for love of him. For I pray in his name. Amen.